Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And I also want to welcome you if you're new to our church. We're going through this sermon series on the Psalms. And uh, Psalm 8 is one of my favorite Psalms, uh, partly because it speaks to the majesty of creation, the sheer size of creation. If the, um, if the earth were the size of a Skittle or an M&M, so picture that, um, that's the size of the earth, then uh, our solar system would be the size of a, a gigantic football stadium, um, not BB&T Field, but something like the Big House or Neyland Stadium or one of those huge 100,000 plus stadiums. That's, so the earth is the size of a Skittle, and then that is the size of the solar system. So just picture that. And now, if the solar system is the size of a giant football stadium, then our galaxy, we are one of many, many solar systems in our Milky Way galaxy, it would be the size of planet Earth. So again, we're, so we're the Skittle. I mean, obviously we are microscopic dots on the Skittle. And then the galaxy is the size of our entire Earth. And then if the galaxy is the size of the Earth, then the entire universe is the size of our solar system. So that just gives you a sense of how massive this universe is that we're part of. And when I was, back when I was an atheist and a scientist, um, I would always say that back in the old days, you know, back, back in those old days, it was easy for them to believe in God because they thought that the earth was flat and they thought that basically all the stars and moon were just like this vault that was over the flat earth and so you know maybe it was like a thousand miles away and then the stars just kind of went like this across every night and the sun went like this across that vault and so back in those those days when they thought everything was so small it was really easy to believe in a god who was a personal god and, and who knew us and all that stuff but um if you look at what king david says here and this is written in about a thousand roughly a thousand bc okay so this is back in those old days and what David says is actually something very similar to what I would say today. When I look at your heavens, verse 3, and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars that you have made, if I had been right as an atheist physics major, then he would have said, um, you know, obviously, well, obviously, then we are, you know, the, the, the crown of that tiny little jewel. But that's not what he says. He says, when I consider those things... What in the world am I? I am nothing. How could you possibly be concerned about me? So he is, he is absolutely baffled the way that any of us would be today, that in a universe that large, that there could be any kind of God that, that had any awareness of, of you and I. He, he, that's the whole point of this psalm, is that our importance in the eyes of God is not an obvious fact of nature. It is a, it is a revelation of God's scripture that is absolutely amazing. And in some ways, absurd. And that's what I want to look at um, in this psalm, this paradox of, first of all, the majesty of God in the universe, this massive, beautiful universe that he's made. Like Jonah was saying, we all have this craving and this yearning for beauty. And we certainly see that in the universe. As that first song we sang so eloquently put it. Uh, that's the first thing I want to look at. And then after that, this other thing that God's majesty is also shown in this little tiny minuscule creature called humankind, homo sapien, that um, there's even more majesty, I would say, revealed by God through this tiny little ruler 
this little dominion creature called man. Uh, and I'll be using the word man the way that they used to like 100 years ago, which just refers to all humanity. So I'm not being sexist there. Um, it's just a way, it's a very simple poetic way of describing all people. Um, so it could say man and woman. Um, but Blaise Pascal said way back in 1669, back in the olden days, Blaise Pascal was a famous uh, mathematician scientist who became a Christian in his 20s and wrote this, that he felt he was engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces whereof he knew nothing. So we weren't the first to feel that way. In, in fact, in 200 BC, very few people know this, but a, a Greek uh, scientist named Aristosthenes calculated almost perfectly the circumference of the earth. So he didn't think it was flat. Because if he calculated the circumference, that means he knew that it was actually a sphere. And, and, he, and so that was very well understood. 200 BC, you know, we're so arrogant about our knowledge of science. He actually calculated the distance to the sun also. So, you know, we think we know so much more. But one thing we don't know as much as the ancients did was how majestic God is in the universe. And that's how this psalm begins and ends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Not only is he the Lord, but he is also our personal Lord. It begins and ends with that phrase. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It says in verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. So that's beyond. That means there's glory beyond the uh, visible universe. And the diameter of the observable universe is 91 billion light years. So his glory extends beyond that. The, um, the age of the universe is 13.8 billion years. His glory is more ancient than that. I mean, for this thing to exist where a part of, there has to be a cause greater than the effects. And so whatever that cause is, it is mighty and wonderful and awesome in the old sense of that word. John Calvin, back in 1536, called it a dazzling theater of glory. David calls it uh, the mere work of your fingers. And he doesn't say the work of your body, Lord. So it's not like some kind of big installment sculpture. He doesn't even say the work of your arms or even hands like a painting would be. He says the work of your fingers to emphasize how incredibly small it is, like a little tiny Lego figure that you might assemble. That's what the universe is like to God. So the point that David is making here is how immense both the universe is and even more how immense God, the creator of that universe, is. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And, and name means uh, a character, um, the kind of being that God is. And I don't know if you saw it on Tuesday morning after the hurricane had passed by, um, but Florence left this glowing, um, amazing um, sunrise in the sky when she passed by, and it was like it was on fire. And I thought when I looked up at that, um, I just thought if the, if the art is this good, then what would the artist be like if, if the art is that well-crafted? That well thought through. When I first saw St. Paul's Cathedral, I didn't know that um, Christopher Wren designed it, but I certainly didn't say to myself, that probably just appeared one day. You know, probably just uh, assembled itself randomly. I knew that there was some name behind it, 
And that, that whatever name, whatever ingenious name and imagination it was, it was, a, it was a great name. It was a majestic name. And that's what David is saying here, is that there must be some character beyond the heavens um, that is greater, much, much greater than the heavens. Psalm 19 puts it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day is pouring forth speech, information, knowledge of God. Night after night is revealing knowledge of God's thoughts. And um, one of the great early astronomers, uh, Johannes Kepler, said that all science is thinking God's thoughts after him. And that's what Psalm 19 is saying, is that uh, the heavens are just pouring out information. And our job as humans is to, um, is to watch carefully what's happening and to think, follow the thoughts. Follow what the thoughts behind nature are. People sometimes talk about outer space uh, like it's this terrible, dark abyss, this giant nothingness, uh, cold and empty and frightening. In the movie Gravity, um, the trailer begins like this. At 372 miles above the earth, uh, there is nothing to carry sound. There's no air pressure. There's no oxygen. Life in space is impossible. And the rest of the movie is just showing you how terrifying outer space is. Um, But compare that to this description of outer space from a book called Out of the Silent Planet. It's it's a science fiction novel, uh, part of a trilogy by C.S. Lewis. And this is what... Um, the, the, the hero named Ransom sees when he first enters into outer space. He says, The stars were thick as daisies on an uncut lawn. They reigned perpetually with no cloud and no moon and no sunrise to dispute their sway. There were planets of unbelievable majesty and constellations undreamed of. Celestial sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and pinpricks of burning gold. The very name space seemed blasphemous for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. So, you know, gravity or C.S. Lewis, I think I'm going to go with Lewis on that one. Outer space is not quite the right word for whatever that is like to be out there. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote this, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It flames out... It gathers to a greatness. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. Now, if that's not your reaction to what is out there, um, to the glory of what is out there, um, then I would have to say that there's a problem. Um, We have a problem, Houston. There's something going wrong inside of any human that sees what is out there and kind of yawns. It's like going to the Grand Canyon and just kind of like shrugging, whatever, you know, let's go get a Coke. It's, it's, a, it's a breakdown of some faculty that's supposed to be inside of humans, the faculty for wonder. David actually, and this is really strong language, and it's a strange part of this passage. It's the part that probably made the least sense to you when Laura read it. But in verse 2, David goes so far as to say that if there is no wonder and any, there's no awe anywhere in your heart, then he would say that you're an enemy of God. And again, that's really strong language. Uh, but he calls, he calls this group of people the foe of God and even the avenger, uh, the enemy. And it's really strong language, like I said. It's uh, surprising that he would say that. But I think the, the point is that if you minimize 
the glory of God, it's a very serious thing. In Romans 1, Paul actually kind of ascribes this to being the essential human problem. This is right when he begins to talk about the problem with humans. And he says in Romans 1.20, uh, the, the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness of humans. And ungodliness means um, not being aware of God at all. So the kind of the, 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 um, the ignorance of God, the, uh, the forgetfulness of God, the amnesia about God, that the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness of people. And then here's the key line, who suppress the truth about God's glory and the beauty of creation. And it's that glory suppression that Paul would say is our problem. That's what makes us enemies of God or foes is this, um, this lack of desire to join in the praise of God. I mean, this song, I didn't know we were going to sing this song. Um, and I made fun of it the first time Austin told me about it. Because it's, um, it's got that phrase about uh, 100, 100 billion galaxies. And I was like, you know, at first it was 1,000 tongues to sing, and then there was 10,000 reasons, and now we've got to get to 100 billion. So the next one's going to have like 300 trillion or something. But it's actually a staggeringly beautiful song. Um, just the way that uh, if the stars are made to worship, then who am I not to? And if all of these creatures, um, if, if they catch their breath, then how, how, how not I? And um, the oceans roaring and the mountains bowing down. If everything exists to lift you high, then, then so will I. And I remember used to, uh, I used to get really mad when, we would, when I would take the children to the zoo and uh, they would kind of look for like 10 seconds at the giraffe or the elephant. Uh, and then they'd want to go get an ice cream cone. And it would make me mad that there was this, uh, they would say they were bored. Um, we took them to London to see St. Paul's Cathedral and, and they, were, they got really bored pretty quickly and restless. And it just made me upset that something that glorious and mighty uh, that they could be um, uninterested in. It'd be like falling asleep at your wedding. Just how bad it is to, it's a personal insult to suppress God's glory and just not be really, uh, not care very much and kind of say they have that shrug, the whatever, you know, that ironic shrug of the shoulders. And I think the one reason that David sees the glory that, that, uh, that we don't see is because he looks so carefully. I can imagine that he sat out on his, um, on that same terrace where he looked down and saw Bathsheba. Uh, he probably sat out there in the good old days and just stared intently at the stars. When I look at, when I look at your heavens in verse 3, it means that he spent a lot of time gazing at them and contemplating them. Probably a lot more time than we do. You know, I, I sit there and, and I scroll through some uh, images on my phone of the, from the Hubble Space Telescope, and I, and I think that David didn't know anything about the heavens. And, and I almost never, I mean, I want to say never, close to never, go outside for like an hour and just look at, at what is actually there. For one thing, there's so much light pollution that it's impossible to do that almost. But, you know, back in, back in those days, David was way more aware of the universe and its glory than we are. It's one of the big problems with modern society is we just don't spend a lot of time contemplating nature. And so, therefore, we end up suppressing God's glory. And so it, it very rarely occurs to us because of all this, that thought, what is man that you're mindful of him? Because a lot of the time, I tend to think, well, of course he's mindful of me. You know, 
everybody should be mindful of me that I'm, you know, I'm, anyone's better off uh, being mindful of me. And we don't have that amazement that David had uh, that God would be mindful of him. It's an interesting thing how we kind of, I don't, I'm not always narcissistic. It's kind of a back and forth between this uh, extreme narcissism and then nihilism the next second or maybe a minute or an hour. Uh, it's shuttling back and forth between thinking, on the one hand, I'm the center of the universe, everything's about me. And the next moment, I'm thinking that I'm this meaningless speck in the universe, that there's no possible God that could ever, ever think about me. Um, Stephen Hawking, the great scientist, had the same problem. In a 1995 interview, he called humans, uh, quote, chemical scum, that's S-C-U-M, on a moderate-sized planet orbiting a very average star in the outer suburb of one among 100 billion galaxies. I, just, I don't think that the writers of the song got that from Stephen Hawking. But I just noticed it's the same number. But, you know, Hawking's always so cheerful about life. Um, he's basically saying, I am meaningless, you're meaningless, we're chemical scum that accidentally arose over the course of 13.8 billion years. It could have happened uh, anywhere. It was a total random accident. But then his wife, Jane, his first wife, Jane, um, she said that um, he... Quote from an interview, he felt like an all-powerful emperor, a master puppeteer. He felt he was omnipotent, you might say. And she said that her role in, in his uh, life was mostly to tell him he's not God. So it's that same thing. You know, we, we flip-flop between, uh, on the one hand, this incredible arrogance and narcissism and suppression of glory. And the next second, it's like we think that uh, our lives mean nothing that there's no one out there, and I suspect that the two are related. But King David strikes this perfect balance where he says, what is man? In other words, I'm not the center of things. It's amazing that you would have any interest in me, but you are mindful of me. I'm not a meaningless accident. So it, it, it destroys both of these problems. It, the idea here is that I am a tiny little nothing that is cherished by God. And I would say that's, that is the center of this entire poem is that thought that I am a creature of dust, but that God delights in me. So now that's moving to point two. We've looked at God's majesty in this mighty universe that he made, but now this little tiny speck of a nothing called humans, there's even more majesty of God in that minuscule ruler that shockingly he made to have dominion. I mean, to create the sun, moon, and stars, again, is majestic, is wonderful. But then to create a dust creature in God's own image, so small, I would say, is an even greater thing. When he says, what is man, that you're mindful of him, the word man there uh, means uh, dust or earth. It's literally the word red. So it means like red clay. It's an insult. Um, Genesis 2-7 says the Lord God formed the man from dust from the ground. And that's a play on words. He formed the Adamah from uh, Adam, or actually he formed Adam from Adamah. So it's, the idea is that uh, this thing named Adam was, was nothing. He was dust. And yet then David says that as creatures of dust, we wear these crowns that God gives us inexplicable dominion. Verse 5, yet, and that's really important, that yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And uh, nobody knows exactly how to translate that. It could just be a little lower than God or a little lower than the angels. 
But I think the safe thing to say is what he's saying is that we are made in God's image. That we are made like God. And that it's this shocking combination of, imagine little tiny children, like a two-year-old wearing uh, this giant crown, an oversized robe, sitting on a big throne, holding a giant scepter. That's the idea here. Uh, It's almost silly that we would be made to have this dominion. Verse 6 says, you have put all things under his feet. That's, again, that's man. You have put all things under his feet. Sheep and oxen, and he goes on, wild beasts and birds and fish. Imagine being an explorer and you're in the high Andes and you came across a valley that had never yet been seen. And there was this little race of tiny, tiny mice. You know, itsy-bitsy mice. And uh, they had these incredible supercomputers. They had found technology we had never dreamed of. They had cell towers everywhere. Uh, They owned the majority share in Google, Facebook, and Amazon, we found out, under some, you know, pseudonym. And wouldn't that be shocking to find out that a little tiny thing like that was actually ruling the world? Well, if if you got an alien to come down here, and the alien didn't know any better, and you lined up all these different creatures... You know, put them in a police line, and you had, uh, you know, the ant and the aardvark, and then you had a human, and then you had a gorilla and a lion and an elephant and just the blue whale. And you asked the alien, well, which one of these things do you think rules the planet? I don't think the alien would go with the hairless, weak, little, anxious biped. I think they would probably pick something on the right side of the scale, maybe the blue whale or maybe the elephant or the lion or the gorilla, but weak as we are, and this is, whole, this is part of the whole plan, weak as we are, uh, frail as we are, if any one of us got in a cage with the lion, we would die. Uh, and yet, we are made in God's image. And in Genesis 1, when God makes the universe, he's incredibly creative. He speaks and things come into existence. He orders things like a great artist. He takes chaos and formlessness and void, and he brings form, and he fills the form with creatures. And then it says he made man in his image to be like him, which means we do the same thing. We are given rule and creativity, and we bring order out of chaos. And it says explicitly in in Genesis that we are made to have dominion, just like it says here. I saw saw Lewis and, and Daniel in the NICU and they're under two pounds, and yet, like, the longer I looked at them, they had all of the royal dignity of a human. I mean, the intricacy, the complexity of the hand, the features, the nose, uh, the powerful mind, the eternal soul, it's all in there at that, you know, 25 weeks. And when I saw them, I just, I, I said to John... You know, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image and let them rule and have dominion over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the depths of the sea. It's an incredible, incredible thing that um, not only they could exist, but that we, we could exist as weak as we are. And uh, we have to have clothes and we have to live in, in homes and we can't really exist on the planet we're a part of, and yet we are made to rule. Now that's a very, um, 
debated and contested truth these days. It wouldn't have been at all 10, 20, 30 years ago. But today, the idea of of verse 6, that you have given humans dominion over the work of your hands, is very controversial. And I'm afraid it will only become more so. Uh, I was looking at a website called nonhumanrights.org, nonhumanrights.org, and apparently on May 8th, Judge Eugene Fahey, and uh, he is of New York's highest court of appeals, so this is a high-ranking state judge. He issued an opinion, it was a dissenting opinion, but he issued the, the opinion that these two chimpanzees who were, uh, who were in a cage in a zoo, um, it was kind of a makeshift zoo, and so there was cruelty to animals, no doubt about it, but their names were Tommy and Kiko, and he ruled, this judge, that they have rights, they have legal rights of habeas corpus, among other things. And, quote, he said, they are individuals with inherent value who have the right to be treated with respect. And then in a um, 2013 Psychology Today article by Mark Beckhoff, and you would see the same thing today, uh, he objects to what he calls human exceptionalism. And this has, become a very, this has got a lot of currency now in the academy, this idea of human exceptionalism is a terrible thing. And Mark Beckhoff writes this, discrimination against certain animal species by human beings based on a ridiculous assumption of our superiority is a narrow and self-serving form of speciesism. Speciesism. Which is akin to racism and sexism. And I would say, you know, I would agree with them um, that the language of dominion can be dangerous. And it can open the door to cruelty to animals, and that's obviously a terrible thing, and trashing the earth and polluting the air, terrible things. But I think that's only going to happen if we forget who we are. Ironically, it's going to happen when you stop saying that people are made in God's image. You're going to get more and more of that. Um, But if, if we become arrogant, the enemy of God, the foe, and ungrateful and unmoved and smug and complacent, if we forget how absurdly blessed we are, yes, we're going to do that. We're going to do those things. We've done terrible things to nature and to animals, but, but we do have this inherent dignity they don't have, uh, namely primarily to worship God and to, get, and to know God's majesty and to know the earth we live in and to study it and to master it and then to take care of the earth, to be a gardener and a steward. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do would be to steward the earth, not to uh, oppress the earth. We're this incredible combination of, on the one hand, just a simple, pure animal that needs to eat and drink and um, sleep and breathe. We're we're just an animal in one sense, but on the other sense, we're made a little lower than the angels. And we're like an amphibian that is both spiritual and physical. One of my favorite writers, the Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton, calls us strangers on the earth, bringing alien habits from another land, a creator moving miraculous hands and fingers, wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes, propped on artificial crutches called furniture, and shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter. Now that's really hard to keep in mind how different we are from the animals. But it's really, really important. It's really important that we not forget that because if we do forget how amazing we are, we're going to kind of just fall down into this toxic culture that we live in of, of the loss of human dignity, uh, of the idea that we are these narrow, self-serving um, species that 
that mistreat animals in a way that is similar to racism. It's very hard to stay positive in a culture where you're told that you're nothing more than an animal or chemical scum or a bag of, uh, of chemicals or just neurons firing. John Updike, the novelist, said that our minds have been scorched by what science tells us of our perilous and insignificant place in the cosmos, its unthinkable largeness and our unimaginable smallness. And if you don't know about Psalm 8 and this idea that we're made in God's image, your mind is going to be scorched by that. And uh, it's going to be very, very depressing. I don't really know how people get by who think that way. Uh, To quote Stephen Hawking again, we are no more than an advanced breed of monkey on a minor planet of a very average star. And we don't hear exactly that said to us a lot, but we we get the clue. Um, we know that it's out there. We know that many, many, probably the most people uh, in the academy today think that way. And it begins to affect us. And it's no wonder we're depressed. When we get reduced down to these kind of consuming machines and sex machines, and we're, we, come, we become a GPA or a wingspan. I hate how they talk about uh, athletes like they have a wingspan, like they're just uh, like a bird or something like that. And we get reduced down to our, our, our vertical leap and how quickly we can run, the 50, and an IQ, our earning potential. If you just read the way that a lot of um, sports blogs talk about athletes, it's really kind of frightening. Talk about objectification of women. The same thing happens with these athletes all the time. And that's what we need to get Psalm 8 inside of our heads. Because it is, um, again, it is out of the blue. It comes out of nowhere. This is not thought to be obvious by David. He's saying, I'm telling you special information that you would not know if you just studied nature. Namely, verse 4, that God is mindful of you. His mind is full of you, literally. I mean, think about finding out if you have a crush on someone. Like, let's say you're in middle school again, or maybe you are in middle school, or you're in high school and you have a crush on someone, and, uh, and you think that they've never even noticed you. I mean, it was that way with me. I, I would think there's no way she could have even seen me before. What if you like, find her journal or his journal and you realize that you're, it's all about you and that their mind is full of you? That would be, I mean, I would have been ecstatic. And um, to find out that the one who made the universe, the beauty of that mind that formed the stars and made these animals that we see around us, I mean, who would have thought of a hippopotamus or an ostrich, that that mind has you in it It's that complex that it can hold you and six billion other people inside there at the same time and be full of all of us at the same time. Thinking about us constantly, intensely interested in our lives, intensely interested in little tiny Lewis and little tiny Daniel. The majestic name, right? The majestic name who fathers forth, whose beauty is past change. And then that's not the end. The end is verse 4. That's where I'm going to end. Which is my favorite part where he simply says that, uh, that he cares for us. What is man that you should be mindful of him or that you should care for him? And I don't like the translation care. It literally means to visit. It's the word when God comes and visits Israel and delivers them. And actually comes down in his presence like he visited them on Mount Sinai. And, of course, David meant that kind of more symbolically, but we know, standing where we do on the other side of the incarnation, we meant, he meant that eventually that was going to happen literally, that the visitation would really, really happen, and that the true greatness of God 
was revealed not, not in the majesty of nature, but in this visitation that he made, where he came down. And as amazing as it is that he created humans in his image, it's even more so that God would actually become one. This dive down into obscurity. On, uh, on August 24th, three years ago, this guy named uh, Laszlo Schaller, uh, he was Australian. I think he had to be Australian to do this. And he stepped onto the edge of this waterfall. And um, it's right on the, the Swiss-Italian border. You can watch him do this on YouTube. And it was, it's 193 feet down. And the water at the bottom is not that big. The little tiny lake. And so you see him just jumping off the edge of that thing. And it's three and a half seconds he's in the air. I mean, just, think, just count that in your head. Think about that dive. And then he hits the water at 75 miles an hour. It's the highest dive ever recorded. And he, all he did was he dislocated his hip slightly. But um, I only use that as an analogy because I thought about, like, essentially the, the word grace means God's dive down into our reality. And you can think of December 24th, 3 BC, as like, there's the Son of God, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, looking down over the edge of the universe, billions of light years down, and just deciding to just take the plunge and leap down into weakness, into a dust creature. He, be- he didn't just make a dust creature to rule, he becomes a creature of dust to visit us and to say to us, you're not alone. And yes, the universe is huge and terrifying, but I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. Philippians 2.6 puts it like this. Though he was in the very form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped a hold of, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when David says, what is man? I think the answer we know is uh, that that is, that is man. You know, Pilate presented Jesus to the people and said, Eke homo, which means behold the man. And that's kind of the answer to Psalm 8. What is man? Jesus. That's, that's the man who, who conquers his enemies through weakness. And he restores our dignity And he regains his praise through his weakness. I love verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You've established the strength to fight your foes. And he could have said, out of the descent of God into nothingness and oblivion and crucifixion, he establishes the strength to fight his enemies. And so a thousand years ago, David wrote, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and stars that you've made, what is man? I think today he would probably write if he was with us, When I consider the visitation that you made and the descent, the height of your descent and the immensity of your grace, then I would ask fully, what is a man or a woman that you would be mindful of us? And the answer we have um, symbolized in this meal that we're going to partake in where we celebrate.